Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we acknowledge that Bart ain't so bad, which is an attitude that is sometimes adopted by our fellow Lutheran theologians, but sometimes not, and with great um, high-handed fanfare. So, Dad... We are going to give Bart his due, and I should begin that by saying that um, I'm looking forward to this episode for you to help me more consciously and explicitly give Bart his due, because I think the simple fact is that I have imbibed so much Bart by osmosis over the course of my life and education that it is hard for me to come to him and see what the big deal is, because it all seems very obvious. But that is obviously not the case. There's nothing obvious about Bart, is there? I don't think so, but why don't you tell the uh, listeners a little bit about how you absorbed all this? Well, I think pretty much I absorbed it from you, who absorbed it from both Bart and from Robert Jensen. But my own difficulty in kind of making direct contact with Bart in a way that like electrified me, as it often does for people, is I think, well, I went to Princeton Seminary for my master's and doctoral degrees. And Princeton was then and probably still is now just a a hotbed of Bartianism. In fact, in the systematic theology department, I think every single professor was a Bart scholar or had done their dissertation on Bart. So it was in the air. You couldn't not inhale it. But I think... (laughs) What my memory is, is that for people coming out of liberal Protestantism, Bart was their first encounter with Christian doctrine. And so it was kind of filling in that profound doctrinal poverty. And for people coming from more evangelical Protestantism, Bart was their first contact with uh, the intellectual life where theology was concerned. It was filling in an intellectual poverty and curing their biblicism without discarding the Bible. And so I think people coming from those two sort of uh, opposite wings of Protestantism generally just, I mean, Bart like opened up so much to them that they'd been deprived of. But I came from a doctrinally rich, non-biblicistic Lutheranism. So I was like, well, yeah, of course, Christology. <laughs> so I, I think uh, with uh, all due, oh, well, and then uh, um, also there was the fact that at least one semester I was reading several hundred pages of Bart a week, and I used to joke that I would go to Starbucks, open my my uh, church dogmatics, and basically underline every sentence I understood. <laughs> <laughs> which was probably slightly less than half. So <laughs> so probably now uh, I would have a different, I would have a, a better access to see what was so revolutionary and groundbreaking about Bart. Um, but I'll just, um, rather than plow through uh, all whatever, 12, 16 volumes, I think I'll just let you in the next hour tell me why I should be more openly and explicitly appreciative of Bart. Oh, I have a feeling you'll be chiming in if I even try to do that. But let me just observe, Sarah, that the advantage you had at Princeton was that you were dealing with the mature thought of Karl Barth in the church dogmatics by uh, American scholars who had actually worked through Barth and made the important distinction between the early Bart of the commentaries on the Epistle to the Romans, the period of dialectical or crisis theology in the 20s, 
and the new beginnings Bart continually tried to make that finally crystallized in his book on Anselm, Cordeus Homo, Why God Became Human, uh, and then the project of the church dogmatics, uh, which is primarily what I want to talk about today, because for many reasons here in the United States, Bart has never really been seriously received or understood, and, and that has a lot to do also with the German Lutheran reaction against Bart and how that became a convenient way uh, for theologians in the United States to uh, uh, dismiss the challenge or the task of reading the mature Bart seriously. At least that's an operating hypothesis. That's how I'd like us to talk about this today. How does that sound? Sounds great, and it sounds like a plausible hypothesis. Well, let's try it out. You know, the story of the early Bart is probably quite familiar to most of our readers, but maybe just briefly I should I should rehearse it for those who are, aren't sure of that. Uh, he uh, is a Swiss German. Uh, he had his beginnings in liberal theology in Switzerland. His father was a professor of New Testament, and so he was always immersed in the Bible. Uh, but from the liberal Protestant perspective in the tradition, the Zwinglian tradition of, of Swiss Reform Protestantism. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, his mature years find him in Berlin, at that time the intellectual capital of imperial Germany, and he was a pupil of the great liberal uh, Protestant historian of dogma, Adolf von Harnack, um, who famously uh, uh, lectured on the essence of Christianity to 3,000 students in some place in Berlin. Uh, Good and Yeah, it was just a, an event like in 1903 or something like that, uh, in which he reduced Christianity to God and the soul, the soul and God, uh, that Jesus' uh, theology was all about God the Father and not at all about God the Son. You get the drift. Yeah, I think we'll never, ever have an episode entitled Harnack Ain't So Bad. <laughs> well, actually, that would be a good one because he actually was <laughs> a very acute reader of dogma, but that's another story. So anyway, this is where Bart starts. And what happens? World War I breaks out, and Adolf von Harnack and all the other leading lights of German liberal theology line up next to the Kaiser and endorse vigorously the German war aims. Mm. And Bart was utterly disillusioned by seeing his teachers uh, do this act of uncritical war propaganda and Germany first patriotism. Mm. Of course, the fact that he was Swiss probably had gave him a little bit of critical distance on this, but he saw all the progressive ideals that were uh, about the advance of civilization, about brotherhood, sisterhood, about nonviolence and overcoming war. All of this was being betrayed in this war propaganda. And then, of course, the war went on for five merciless years of trench warfare, the first total war, mechanized warfare, 
the devastation. I think 18 million people were killed in World War I, something unbelievable along those lines. So apparently it's not enough to talk about God and the soul. Yeah, definitely not. Bart returned to Switzerland during the war and became a pastor in a working-class neighborhood. And there he saw firsthand the struggles of the laboring classes, the working classes. He was never a Marxist, but he was attracted to, at that time, what was called religious socialism. And he was, which basically meant, you know, that the church should be in solidarity with the vast majority of its members who are the working class in this very difficult time. In that context, you know, he and his friend decided that they had to go back to the basics, back to the sources. And this was precipitated by a reading of Soren Kierkegaard, particularly in the vein of his late-in-life attack on Christendom. Uh, And they're reading Kierkegaard as already in the 18th, 40s, speaking against the illusions of the liberal Protestant progressive theology of history and the importance of the individual conversion to the radicalness of Christianity uh, in an existential leap of faith. This was uh, the message of Kierkegaard that was particularly moving to this uh, these disillusioned liberals uh, mm-hmm. during World War One. In any case, he and his friend, uh, I'm not always, I always mispronounce his name, Turnison or something like that, uh, began to read the letter to the Romans together. And this eventuated in a publication of a commentary on the Book of Romans, which fell like a bombshell on the playground of the theologians, as it's famously said. Because the fundamental message of it was, God is in heaven, and thou, O man, thou art on the earth. (laughs) You do not have God. God is not imminent in your progress, in your history. God is not your possession. Christianity cannot be had as your cultural legacy. Uh, The only way God comes to us as a genuine coming of the great unknown God shatters all our preconceptions of God as idols and is revealed where? Exclusively in the cross of Christ. Kaboom. Okay, so let me ask a question here. So until you said the cross of Christ, everything preceding it sounded to me like just hot Neoplatonism rather than cold Neoplatonism with a, you know, very (laughs) transcendent, very distant God that you can't control. The only approach is a cataphatic one. And, you know, so I don't know. Apophatic. Yeah, right. But but yeah, but the cross comes as a surprise as a surprise at the end of that. So is is this like a, a bridge work for Bart between getting out of that neoplatonic liberal tradition and into, you know, meaty doctrine or uh, how does that work in his whole career? Not at this stage. At this of course he's commenting on the book the letter to the Romans. So he's got to have some <laughs> cataphatic theology. The cataphatic theology is nothing but the cross of Christ. Kaboom. Okay, and the resurrection, of course, then gets the impossible possibility of the resurrection, all these kind of themes. Uh, Bart produced a second edition of the commentary on Romans, which he said had been undertaken with a clearer understanding of Plato 
and of Immanuel Kant, which ah. is a very interesting uh, uh, thing that, that he thought with Kant and Plato, he had a more constructive dialectic between the noumenal, ineffable, unknown God and the cataphatic invasion um, uh, of our godless reality through the cross of Christ. And your teacher, Bruce McCormick, um, argues in a very, very good book that Karl Barth never abandoned this dialectical method and that at the background of all of his theology, he remains in philosophy a, a, a follower of Immanuel Kant. But Okay, but listeners know that you don't like Kant. So can you just comment on that briefly, like what is good or bad in Barth's adherence to Kantianism? I mean, you can put it this way, the same for Plato and the same for Kant. Uh, human reason can know that there is a transcendence, but human reason can never say what this transcendence is. Uh, it has no resources to speak uh, truly about the transcendence that it is aware of. In the, at the end of the dialogue, Timaeus, Plato says that the one is... Uh, we can say, but no one can declare what the one is. And, of course, Kant takes a similar position in the philosophy of religion, that God, freedom, and immortality are necessary ideas of the human mind, but uh, they are nothing but ideas, and, and we can say nothing concrete about them. So Bart holds to this all through his doctrinal articulations from the gospel. Is that because the gospel itself solves the problem of not not knowing? It's this background is why for Bart the only possibility of true talk about the true God is confessional in response to the self-revealing speech of the true God. Ah, um, okay. Okay. So f philosophical speech about God is off limits uh, other than the bare indication of transcendence. Uh, but any de declaration of God is philosophically ir irrational, can't be done. I see. So it's like we've said before, God is not a, an object among other objects of knowledge that creaturely epistemology can access. That's just, in, in a way, he would perhaps agree with the most... Um, radical of atheist critics, like, yes, we cannot get there from here. And atheist says, because there is no God. And Bart says, it's because Bar God is the one who has to self-disclose because his otherness is so radical that there is no other way for, th for that knowledge to happen. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's basically right. And that's kind of, and Bruce McCormick is right that in that sense, throughout his long career, Karl Bart was a philosophical Kantian, uh, though he takes uh, Christian theology in a very different direction that Kant ever would have imagined or permitted. Right. And part of that was that in the second edition to the uh, commentary on Romans, there was a kind of affirmation of Christian eschatology, which had been in the works. It was already there on the periphery. Albert Schweitzer, in his important book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus, had basically said all the liberal lives of Jesus written in the 19th century turn out to be nothing but uh, 19th century Germans painting Jesus in their own image. They have no scientific validity at all. And uh, 
when Schweitzer himself at the end of this book had to venture his own historical opinion about who the Jesus of history really was, he basically painted Jesus as an apocalyptic nut who, under the delusion that God had spoken to him about the miraculous coming of the kingdom, uh, got to Jerusalem and discovered that the kingdom was not coming, so in one f final act of defiance threw himself against the wheel, the crushing wheel of the Roman Empire, as it were daring God, trying to trigger God to bring in the kingdom, and the wheel turned and crushed him. <laughs> That's how Schweitzer ends, ends his book on the so-called historical Jesus. Well, that at least is not what Schweitzer did with his own life, so at least he ex escaped the mirror problem. Yeah, he Schweitzer did what a lot of 19th century German liberals really ought to have done. He became a consistent humanist and acted in a principled way on his humanist insights, becoming a medical missionary to the Belgian Congo and so forth, and a, and a humanist, uh, basically a humanist. But the point is, is that Schweitzer with that conclusion, intimated that apocalyptic was the real thought structure at work in the historical Jesus. Another important New Testament scholar, Johannes Weiss, at this time, had also uh, done a study of the Basileia Totheo, the kingdom of God, in the proclamation of Jesus. And most liberals had really picked up on the motif, the kingdom of God, but they interpreted it in a thoroughly Kantian way, that Kant had spoken about historical progress uh, by enlightened culture towards the kingdom of ends, the humanism in which all uh, bearers of reason would be treated as intrinsically valuable, as ends, never as objects or as means. And with this Kantian interpretation of the kingdom of God, then you could talk about building the kingdom of God on earth through the ethical progress of humanity. And that's what most 19th century German Protestants thought the kingdom of God actually meant in the preaching of Jesus. But Johannes Weiss showed us that Jesus understands the kingdom of God strictly in battle with the kingdom of the devil. Once again, it's an apocalyptic construction that is informing Jesus whose kingdom work is rolling back the kingdom of Satan. And here, too, you have the apocalyptic eschatology, likewise dropping as a bombshell on the playground of the theologians. So in the second edition of Romans, Bart has a memorable passage. Uh, Christianity that is not thoroughgoing eschatology has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus Christ. Kaboom. Kaboom. <laughs> Another explosion <laughs> on the playground. But that had a lot to do with the rediscovery of eschatology that run, then reverberates in Germany, not only in Barth, but also in R Rudolf Bultmann's interpretation of the New Testament, and then much later in theologians like uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann and Wolfhard Pannenberg. 
that becomes a major aspect of biblical research of the 20th century too, doesn't it? That that the eschatology and apocalyptic genres and elements are recaptured and reintegrated into biblical study. So there is not just a, a theological need, but also another kind of branch of the scholarship supporting this reinterpretation in, in that direction. Absolutely. And, and so this was all part of the era in the 1920s. So after the success of the commentary on Romans, uh, Bart, even though he does not have a doctoral degree, is given a chair in Reformed Dogmatics, I think at Göttingen or something like that. He begins his theological career. And this is called the period of the theology of crisis or, or dialectical theology. Dialectic, we've already discussed, it's this idea of an of a infinite oscillation between a cataphatic op- affirmation of, of the gospel, always qualified by an apophatic denial that it can be taken literally or directly or immediately or anything like that. So it's a sick at none, a back and forth, a yes and a no. Uh, so that and and for Karl Barth, this is very important because it means that God can never be captured, and objectified and utilized by his human followers, particularly the pious human followers who think they've captured God in their deep feelings, or in their sentimental uh, liturgies or rituals or melodies or sacraments, or in their warmongering. Or in their warmongering, the belt buckle of the German Wehrmacht, uh, Gott mit uns, God, God is with Ugh. us. You know, I had always had the impression, Dad, I don't know if this is projecting too much, but I had the feeling that uh, as a Swiss coming from the Zwinglian branch of the of Reformed theology, that for Bart, the ultimate horror was idolatry. I mean, that seems to me like such a powerful yeah. aspect of Zwinglianism. Like, that's the worst thing you can do, idolatry, and and therefore right. misspeaking of God. And, I, you know, I, I this is perhaps <laughs> overstating the case, but I always had the feeling that Luther, you know, certainly no fan of idolatry, but was a little bit more, um, maybe could be characterized as saying God is more willing to get his hands dirty at risk of idolatry in order to get in, come down and, and be among the people. Whereas I think Bart seems to have more of this kind of revulsion of human misuse of God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really deep issue, isn't it? Because Lutheran Christology, when it remembers what it really is, has this communication of properties at the heart of its understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. And that means just what you said, that the divine person is willing to ascribe to himself really the human properties of sin, death, uh, and woe. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a deep incarnation. That, that is coming all the way down into the depths of ungodliness and death. And for much uh, Lutheran understanding of Jesus Christ, to affirm that is extremely important. Uh, Of course, one also wants to say uh, that this deep incarnation, this self-ascription of the Son of God uh, to himself of human sin and woe is in order that he may confer upon the sinners and the perishing, his life and righteousness. It's a saving exchange, a joyful exchange that actually uh, moves us beyond the uh, state of uh, 
of humiliation uh, and and uh, defeat and so forth. And also not to leave the the sanctified in a position of being ongoing idolaters and manipulators of the divine. Like that that is not the end game. It it is for that to stop at some point. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and you know Bart, especially the mature Bart, is uh, eager to talk this way. There's a rhetoric of the uh, of the joyful exchange that runs throughout the mature Bart. Uh, but the the reason why this is such a difficult issue, Sarah, is he's also an heir to the Reformed tradition that Lutherans polemically called the Extra Calvinisticum. Ah, yes. And the Extra Calvinisticum, named after Calvin, means extra, that the Son of God is extra, the human being Jesus of Nazareth. He's beyond the human. He can't be localized in Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God infinitely transcends Jesus of Nazareth. You can't even box God in in Jesus of Nazareth. And that is a uh, so that you can talk the rhetoric of the joyful ex- exchange. It's an appropriate preaching rhetoric, but it's not to be taken literally. It is always to be qualified by the extra Calvinisticum, which reasserts the infinite dif- difference between divine nature and human nature, such, such that they cannot be synthesized. So that's kind of Karl Barth is caught between the extra Calvinisticum uh, and, and the communication of idioms, the joyful exchange. And I think his theology often oscillates back and forth between these two uh, moments. He ends up being dialectical there too, I guess. Yeah, he and Bart is a, a dialectical thinker. All right, back to the 1920s. The, the theology of crisis during this period attracted a number of Lutheran fellow travelers. Rudolf Bultmann, Friedrich Gogarten, and Paul Tillich, to name some really prominent ones. And in this period, they all thought they were doing the same thing, or at least were on the same page. And what they had in common was a certain kind of existentialism. Now, existentialism, which derives not only from Kierkegaard, but also from uh, Nietzsche, and was being, as it were, laid out phenomenologically by uh, Martin Heidegger, particularly in his massively influential Sein und Zeit, Being in Time, which was published, I think, in 1927. But already, earlier than that, Heidegger was making waves with his phenomenology of the religious life and things like that. Existentialism was in the air. It was called Lebensphilosophie philosophy of life. And here, the fundamental idea that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre later expressed is that existence precedes essence. That's why it's existentialism, not essentialism. Oh, yeah. And what that basically means is that not either in history or in nature or in religion is the human essence predetermined or pre-given. In fact, as Heidegger put it, existence erupts with the absurd fact that you are thrown into it. 
and you are hurtled into existence you know not from where, where you came from, why you're here, how you got here, and suddenly you wake up to the contingency of your own existence, and you don't have any resources in where you had come from to know what you are and what you were supposed to be doing, so the whole burden of the meaning of your life suddenly crashes upon your adult self-awareness simultaneously as you realize that you were hurtling towards non-existence and death. Well, you better drink some absinthe and dull the pain. So, so I mean, like, this sounds to me, you know, this, of course, is really familiar. And now I'm hearing you say it, and I'm suddenly seeing all the historical and physical givens that gave rise to the possibility of having such a detached, ahistorical, non-bodily appropriation of what human life is. Is it, I mean, are, Am I not wrong to suddenly see the vast and absurd contradictions in this assertion? You know, people are born, they have bodies, they have families, they have cultures. And I mean, a lot was happening in the 20th century to detach people from these things. But it, the, excess, <laughs> for the first time, existentialism strikes me as utterly bizarre and senseless. Well, it was the theology of crisis that was erupting in the aftermath of the self-cancellation of um, European progressive culture due to World War I. And in Germany at that time, uh, it, it was called decisionism. Uh, you cannot rationally decide what the meaning of your life should be. It is a risk, a leap of faith religiously, but in any case, a leap you have no rational way of adjudicating the meaning of your life because every traditional resource that you just enumerated has now been exposed as baseless, as powerless, as in ruins, as in smoldering shambles. Now, what are you going to do? And the existentialist gospel was, you must decide. You must make a decision, a leap, of faith. Even though there's no ground for any decision in any direction whatsoever, because everything is senseless. Yes, but what is not senseless is the fact that you have your own existence and you have the burden of making meaning out of it. This is what Sartre called doomed or damned to freedom. You must make this decision about the meaning of your own life. Or just be swept along by the tide of history, I guess. Right. Otherwise, you'll just, it'll be decided for you by others then you would uh, surrender your authenticity. You would fail to be a genuine individual. So there was a kind of, that kind of moral fervor to this decisionism. So the, the, uh, a fascist political philosopher named Carl Schmitt wrote a book at this time called Political Theology, in which he argued this, that you, you must make a heroic decision for meaning. And uh, this was just the in the air everyone was breathing at this time. And all of this then precipitated Sarah into the breakdown of the Weimar Republic uh, in the increasing violence, the street battles between the Reds, the Marxists, and the Browns, the followers of Hitler, the Brown Shirts, the SA. And here, among Bart's fellow travelers, Boltman uh, kind of dodged the uh, 
issues until he joined the Confessing Church after Hitler had come to power. But uh, two other Lutherans, Friedrich Gogarten and Paul Tillich, uh, leapt, and Emanuel Hirsch, I should mention, also leapt in opposite directions. Gogarten and Hirsch jumped uh, in the direction of the Nazis. And Tillich wrote a book called The Socialist Decision, in which he jumped in the direction of the Reds. And Barth looked at this spectacle, this breakdown among uh, the people who had traveled with him in the 1920s and said, we have got to find a way out of this pit of pure subjectivity in theology, which has people leaping in irrational directions and capitulating theology to the politics of the day. I think that's what American reception of Bart has very often failed to understand. Ah, okay. And of course, this was then overlaid with a lot of polemic by Lutherans that Karl Barth thought he was above the fray and that he didn't want to, that the, the Tillich criticism that Barth thought he was above the fray and was afraid to make a concrete decision for the working class. And then the conservative Lutheran criticism of Barth um, that uh, he was actually just a Swiss Zwinglian and couldn't understand the anguish of the German people and their need for a faithful and pious leader sent from God in the person of Adolf Hitler. Uh, yeah, I know. I'll get to that in a minute. But at this point, Bart is looking for a way out of this existential subjectivism in theology, which leads to the collapse of theology into the politics of the day, whether it's on the left or on the right. And he does this with a book on uh, a figure you and I have uh, some appreciation for, Anselm of Canterbury. Oh, yeah. And he writes a book uh, on um, called... Uh, Fetus Quirin's Intellectum, Faith Seeking Understanding, which is an analysis of Anselm's famous argument for the existence of God in the uh, Proslogion, the book called The Proslogion. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. The basic thing that Barth takes away from this is the simple uh, given, the simple fact that the Christian community of faith exists in the world, and here it dares to speak of God, and not only dares to speak of God, but self-critically asks itself on what basis it may dare to do this and with what sense it may dare to say these things. That's basically what Bart gets out of this study of Anselm that the theologian must take his or her stand in the given fact of the Christian community of faith where, in fact, God is spoken of. And the theologian within this community must ask, how is this possible? How could this be valid? What is its sense? And with that, Barth thought he had argued himself out of the subjectivism all around him because the fundamental conviction, the sine qua non, without which nothing happens, of Christian theology 
is the conviction deus dixit, God has spoken. God has revealed himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So could we characterize this as a kind of pushback against the atomization of both mass society and the concessions that Bart's theological companions had made to agreeing that you're just floating in space and there's no ground and there's no there's no anchoring points. And Bart can counterpose to that, no, there is a church which has received this gospel, which is the address of God. And that is where you are located as a theologian. And then that's that's uh, what speaks to you. And therefore, from that is what you speak in turn. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. He's relocating theology in the church. Hence the church dogmatics. <laughs> Right, that's exactly why he names his his magnum opus Church Dogmatics, right? And and in the same move, then he's he's abandoning a kind of nineteenth century scientistic foundationalism that is trying to say, you know, you, you don't need church or gospel or God's speech to anchor theological speech. You say, no, in fact, you do need all those things to anchor theological speech, and it is a fiction if you say that you can establish some kind of independent grounds from which to build your theology. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, now here I want to get into the difficulties in the 1930s, how the alienation between Lutheran theology and BART really took off. Uh, Because, you know, there's a a professor at Princeton you knew, George Hunzinger, uh, who's written several fine studies of BART. And in one of them, he asks with some amazement, uh, how did the estrangement between BART and Luther ever come about? (laughs) And he rightly asked this question because to discerning eyes, when you read the mature Bart, you see two things. You see an incredible reliance on, retrieval of, uh, deployment of fundamental Lutheran ideas and theology, and at the same time, a merciless polemic against Lutheran theologians of his own day, and even the beloved Dr. Martin Luther himself in some respects. And so I want to explain a little bit of this, uh, and we can very conveniently do it with the Barman Declaration. The first thesis, now the Barman Declaration, of course, was the declaration of the Free Synod that assembled in the June of 1934 to speak a word against the pro-Nazi German Christian theology, which was on the rise at this time, trying to coordinate the life, doctrine, teaching, and existence of all German Protestant churches into one unified pro-Nazi German church. And the Free Synod at Barman spoke against this. And the first thesis of the Barman Declaration read, in effect, Jesus Christ is the one word of God, which we must obey in life and in death. No other Lord. Jesus is Lord. No other Lords for us. And, of course, that's directed against the adulation of Adolf Hitler as the leader, the Fuhrer. Right. Mm. Right? It's pretty obvious, right? Well, some, at the time, prominent Lutheran theologians, specifically Paul Althaus 
and Werner Ehlert uh, responded to this thesis of the Barman Declaration in a document called the Ansbach Memorandum, in which they, as I mentioned, uh, thank God for giving Germany a, a pious leader in Adolf Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I know, no retrospective fallacy, but seriously, guys, how did you not see this? Well, partly because they thought of themselves, and I'm being a little bit um, provocative here, they thought of themselves as German theologians of German liberation. They thought of, the, of Germans as an oppressed, downtrodden, humiliated people, uh, and that their theology had to be uh, correlated with the struggle of the German people for freedom and security. So they were in their own, my, my beloved teacher, uh, Robert Bertrand, who was a fan of Werner Ehlert, actually said this to me one time, that Ehlert was in his own way a liberation theologian. You know, I once saw a, a clip of a Hitler speech. I think it was in the context of a Bonhoeffer documentary. And I was horrified because I was like, this is this is liberation theology rhetoric. <laughs> I was like, it had never occurred to me to that point that it could be deployed in such an incredibly evil way. But the 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 rhetoric and the appeals and the language of liberation, everything, it was just it was boilerplate. That was very chilling. Yes, and that's, of course, one of the major points of my interpretation of Hitler's not-so-strange theology. But let's not get sidetracked there. Uh, okay. that's en it's enough to note that. Ehlert and Althaus, calling themselves authentic voices of Lutheranism, of course, now created an enormous uh, hermeneutical problem. You know, when I want to know something about Thomas Aquinas, who do I go to? I go largely to Catholic scholars to tell me what Thomas Aquinas meant. If I want to know something about John Calvin, who do I go to? I largely go to Calvinist scholars. If I want to know something about patristic scholars, who do I go to? I go to Anglicans who have specialized in this, or I go to uh, uh, Orthodox theologians, and so on. You get the point. So when someone wants to know about Luther, who do they go to? The latest, best Lutheran thinking about Luther, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And in the 1930s in Germany, that was Ehlert and Althaus. And if they say uh. this is what Luther means, that's what Luther means. And so much of Barth's polemic against Martin Luther was, in fact, his polemic against contemporaneous Lutherans who were utilizing Luther in support of fascism. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Ha having flagged that problem of the uh, Lutheran misunderstanding of Bart, which then stops the study of Bart before the church dogmatics begins to appear. Uh, and rarely have Lutherans since then taken Bart very seriously. And I just want to give a quick survey of the uh, church dogmatics to indicate why I think it's so helpful and so continually important. Volume one of the church dogmatics is called the Doctrine of the Word of God. We've already given the background for this, that if, the if theology is to speak responsibly of God, it can only be on the basis of God's self-interpretation, God's self-revelation. 
And the doctrine of the Trinity is itself the Christian confession of God's self-interpretation in the Word of God, in the Gospel of God. And in this first volume, uh, Bart spells this out in this little formula, formula. God reveals himself as Lord, which is to say the Father reveals the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and Bart says this um, is the specifically Christian thing to say about transcendence, about G-O-D. Mm. We should note, notice here that taking this approach, uh, Bart prioritizes the question of who God is over the question of what God is. Mm. Mm. So that's really interesting because it's it's making a break from, uh, again, in a more substantial way from this idea that God is an object among other objects that can be known and studied and therefore manipulated and controlled. But the, the leading point is God as a who and therefore an encounter something um, personal with a history and a power to act. Yeah, this is basically how Bard interprets the famous story of Moses at the burning bush and the divine name, the Tetragrammaton. Right. Uh, and basically, uh, if I can just popularize that very quickly, the divine name, which is a form of the Hebrew verb to be, uh, and probably means something I w like I will be who I will be, basically is saying, here, I can give you a word that you with which you can name me, address me by name, but the meaning of the name is don't presume to know what I already am. Let me, as a subject, show you who I am by my history with you, by my deeds with you. So learn to know what I am as God from who I am as your God. Uh, and that's the prioritization of the who question over the what question. And a corollary of this is that in Christian theology, subject and predicate are not reversible. So subject is always the who, the I, the, the Lord who speaks, right? Predicates are statements of attributes, um, answers to the what question. So just to make a very simple explanation of that, Love, the predicate, love, is not God. Rather, God, the subject, is love. In this we know love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us in Christ, right? Subject and predicate are not reversible. The who has precedence over the what and governs the interpretation of the what. But I know that it's like, let me, let me just ask a, a quick question. I know that it's sometimes popular to just jettison the so-called metaphysics altogether and just refuse to ever ask a what question about God and insist only on a who. But Bart wouldn't wouldn't go that far, would he? He would say you can talk about the what, but only derivatively from the who. Right. And what that turns into is a brilliant restatement of Luther's treatise on the freedom of the Christian. Uh, the attributes of, of God, the answers to the what question, uh, are basically in the by now well-known formula, everyone's adopted it, that God is the freedom to love. God is freedom to love. Those are God's attributes. It's, a, it's a, 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 again, a dialectic. God
God is as subject freedom. God is as substance or predicate love. God is freedom to love. And this freedom to love means that love can never be um, uh, reified into a, a single uh, a doctrinaire statement that then ha- controls our talk about God. It's the other, other way around. God, in God's ongoing history with us, is continually manifesting himself subjectively in new and unanticipated acts of love. I want to speak next to volume two, part two especially, which was the reformulation of the reform doctrine of election. Now, you remember, as an heir uh, of uh, Zwingli and Calvin in the reform tradition, Bart inherited the doctrine of double predestination. Of course, uh, for uh, Calvin, this was a horrible thought, but a necessary one. Uh, for Zwingli, it was a necessary thought and perhaps not so horrible after all. Uh, I, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, anyway, uh, this was a, a, a product of the thinking that God is the only one who can truly, truly be called an agent that God alone uh, is a, a causal power. In German, allein wirkamseit Gottes. God alone works all in all. This is a kind of a metaphysical version of the sovereignty of God. Everything that happens necessarily happens according to divine determination. And that means, of course, that if there are some saved, they are saved solely because God has willed it. And if some are damned, they are damned solely because God has so willed it. And there's no asking for rhyme or reason in this. It's simply the free and arbitrary determination of God. Horrible agreed, but is it necessary? Right. And... Uh, of course, this creates from the uh, Roman Catholic side an objection which has is called in the 20th century theopanism. Theo, God, panism, everything. God is everything. And human agency or subjects are simply modes of God's own uh, activity in the world. Human beings have no agency of their own. So there's Roman Catholic criticism. Oh, so this is their accusation of Bart. This is not the Roman Catholic position. Right. Yeah, this is their criticism of Bart, that, okay. uh, that Bart is a theopanist, panist, and, and this because he's following this doctrine of double predestination. What is the genuine difference in Lutheran theology from aligned vicomcite gotis, uh, that God alone is a, the causal agent? Uh, one can speak instead, and I think this is Luther's meaning in the treatise on the bondage of the will, of the alles wirkamseit Gottes, that God is efficacious in everything. That's different from saying God alone is efficacious. And I think a close reading of Luther's treatise shows that he is thinking not that God is the maker of all choices, but that God uh, is the cause of all causes. Uh, and I think that's an Augustinian distinction that I think uh, uh, Luther is actually employing. So Bart is dealing with this complicated tradition, struggling to 
understand how to overcome it. And he actually, in my view, um, comes upon a Lutheran Christological solution. Because in the 17th and 18th centuries, during the period of Protestant orthodoxy, what the Lutherans said against the doctrine of double predestination is that the atonement of Christ is unlimited in, in scope. It is a universal atonement, as it was articulated in the Lutheran doctrine of objective justification, that because of Christ's work on the cross, all people have now, in principle, been reconciled to God. They need add nothing to it. It is merely waiting upon their repentance and faith. So this was in contrast to the Reformed tradition, which said logically, because of double predestination, Christ died only for the sake of the elect and not for the sake of all. It was limited atonement versus universal atonement. Bart actually takes up the forgotten Lutheran doctrine of universal atonement and says something like this. From all eternity, God has willed to be the Savior of sinful human creatures in Christ, and that therefore Christ in his um, um, act and his atoning work on the cross, Christ is the object of God's eternal predestination. Christ is not a second thought. Christ is God's first thought. So that all of creation, including what sub the subsequent fall and everything that comes, is in consequences of God's eternal decision to be the savior of sinful humanity through Christ. And how does that happen? Christ himself from eternity was destined to become the rejected of all the rejected. Christ became the, object, the rejected one in his cry of dereliction upon the cross. Christ uh, takes upon himself the sin of the entire world and there endures the judgment of God upon it so that in Christ all those otherwise rejected on account of their own sinfulness have now in Christ become elected through his universal act of atonement. Yeah, I have to say of all the, the BART reading and study I did, this is probably the one that leapt out to me most and, and brought a new thought to me that I, I hadn't, you know, acquired by other means, which was really the, the tremendous thought that election or predestination or even damnation and salvation are first and foremost Christological realities, not only that he does them for us, but that they are done to him and that he is the one who undergoes, that, that the primary meaning of his crucifixion and death is that death for all and that all die in him in a, a very powerful sense and not simply that he is you know, a nice guy and a nice God going through a, a nasty trial just, you know, because it it um, pays off the bill or something like that. But that true damnation actually is invested into Jesus Christ in his death and, and burial. And then true, true election to salvation and resurrection actually happen in him first. And then because it happens to him, it's something that can be extended to everyone else. And I find that is just a wonderful thought simply in the sense of reducing 
inducing religious anxiety or thereby dismissing religion because it's something that produces anxiety. It makes even, you know, the seminal question of salvation center on Christ and not on my um, self-calculating um, dis- uh, decisions or um, assumptions about where I am or where I am not going to be uh, in, in all eternity. Yes, it, it, it gives the, it restores to the Christian believer the joy of simply saying in the full meaning of the word, Jesus is Lord. Therefore, it's not up to me to worry about this anymore. I'm set free to love as I have been loved. You know, and that was Bart's, always Bart's uh, great uh, breakthrough, I think, here. So let's just mention quickly volume three of the Church Dogmatics about creation as covenant. Is it just me, or is this the least loved volume of the Church Dogmatics? I never hear anyone talk about it. Yeah, it's kind of ponderous in places. Let me just say some (laughs) quick things about it, okay? Okay. If the atonement in Jesus Christ is at the center of the Christian faith, uh, it it presupposes uh, an antecedent. And this antecedent of the atonement is God's act of creation. Uh, the origin of this history in God is the creator, then uh, is the subject of the third volume. Uh, God gives, as an act of free grace, gives the gift of existence to a reality distinct from God, other than God. Yet, and here's what's so important about this, this gift of creation is therefore from the beginning directed to this center. And this, again, is a thought that's very close to Luther as he joins the Ten Commandments to the Creed in the large catechism where he writes, God has created us for no other reason than to redeem and save us. So, as a result, creation is not some autonomous realm separated from the doctrines of redemption in Christ and fulfillment in the eschaton, but creation is um, uh, a a movement in a coordinated, uh, uh, here I'll use your word, Sarah, that you like, history of salvation, okay? And so likewise, if the goal of this history, the eschaton, is salvation, the fulfillment of the sin-frustrated creation by virtue of its redemption in Christ, God's reconciling act in Christ refers to a future for this world on which the cross of Jesus stood, not yet present, but still awaited, so that therefore Christians can say in virtue of an already, a a petition of for the not yet, thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's the basic thing you can take away, at least speaking very quickly from Karl Barth's doctrine of creation. Creation is not a ancient once upon a time act. It's an ongoing activity of the God uh, who has uh, freely determined to be in covenant with humanity and is directing all things through reconciliation in Christ to the goal of the coming of his kingdom upon the earth. So eschatology is not about being airlifted off of this corrupt planet and 
turning into spiritual beings who live in static perfection. But it is this, as as we've said before, this eschatological forward moving direction, not a, a static past or a static future. Well, it's even more, wouldn't you want to say, it's something that ever comes to us, always mm. is coming to us from God's future. Thy kingdom come, right? It's it's not that we are building or progressing ourselves up a ladder to God, but that God is, the God of the promise, is bringing to us in continuous acts of creation and redemption the fulfillment of the whole shebang. <laughs> Great, because the, the universe will end not with a whimper, but with a shebang. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then just let me very briefly now just mention volume four of the Church Dogmatics. is about this, the center of God's history with humanity, the reconciliation accomplished in Christ. Um, this is the mature statement of Bart's theology at the height of his powers. And I'd like to just say a few things about this, because I think it's the most powerful writing of Bart in all the church dogmatics when he talks about the journey of the Son of God into the far country. Oh, yeah. yeah which is a beautiful uh, uh, riff on the uh, Jesus's parable of the prodigal son and how God in his glory uh, out of in the freedom to love undertakes the state of that disgraced son in Jesus's parable, finding himself uh, eating the slop fed to the hogs in a Gentile land. And here, Bart, you know, explores some really powerful ideas, the judge judged in our place, the idea that there is in humility, there is in the very life of God, humility and obedience and self-giving, self-donation, in a way that is not self-abasement. It, it is not simply becoming a doormat for others to trample on, but a very powerful act of rescue uh, for those who have uh, life, find themselves in life, life beyond rescue. Uh, and so, I, you know, maybe, maybe I should just stop there. The Doctrine of Reconciliation is also where Bart relocates the great Protestant Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith. This too offended some Lutherans. This is how I want to end with Lutheran offense at Bart, that instead of making the article of justification the article on which the church stands and falls, uh, Bart located it within an overarching doctrine of reconciliation. Oh, that terrible Hegelian Bart <laughs> introducing the Hegelian idea of reconciliation uh, as a uh, thesis and an antithesis captured in a superior synthesis. Is this what we have instead of our dear justification by faith? I mean, the polemic here was just outrageous against him. There are a couple of things that I'll let you respond to these typical Lutheran criticisms of Bart, that he gets the order of law and gospel wrong when he flips it to speak of gospel and law, that he rejects the teaching of the hidden God and says there's only the revealed God and actually polemicizes against the Lutheran idea of the hidden God as this Trojan horse through which Nazi 
paganism re-entered the church. I suppose there's others, but those are the, the chief Lutheran complaints against Bart. Well, I mean, with, with the hidden God one, I think, you know, Luther and Bart are tackling different issues here. And as I recall, in the bondage of the will for, for Luther, the issue is not that there is a God other than the God of the gospel, but whether we have access and how we have access to that God who is only the God of the gospel. And he says it's not until we have the light of glory that that becomes fully a resolved issue for us. And he acknowledges the the gap of knowledge and access that we have to endure. And that that is actually why faith has something to do with the religious life. So th- that's all I have to say for that. And then as for the, the gospel law thing, you know, <laughs> the, the problem is, is that even the traditional law gospel ordering that Lutherans attend to, it, it only really applies to a very specific and narrow set of human circumstances, which is, first of all, being the kind of person who even can be accused of the law. And that presumes a religious setting. It presumes being already in the church and having absorbed so deeply the law of God that you are even capable of being aware that you can't keep it to which then the gospel can be the great word of relief that God's love for you and your salvation is not contingent upon your keeping of the law. But if you're in a situation where there is no divine law, at least, when all that you have is, you know, competitive law, social law, customary law, or whatever, then why should God's law ever even, like, why would you even take it seriously? <laughs> so, you know, then it would, then it makes a lot more sense that the gospel, this announcement of a reconciliation in the crucified and risen Christ might be exactly what breaks through to you. And then in the light of that, suddenly you are capable of seeing what divine law is and then how you have not kept it. So the the law and attention to the law and love of the law could only be a result of knowing the gospel and not your motivation for loving the gospel in the first place. And I think in any actually real lived spiritual life, there is a constant movement between law and gospel all the time. You know, sometimes gospel loving Christians get super complacent and the law is exactly what they need. And Luther will always say that you can't keep the law unless the Holy Spirit has come to you and you've begun to live in the gospel life. And at the same time, you know, sometimes it is it is truly the law that gets you first, maybe even not divine law, maybe local law has oppressed you and the gospel is relief from that, but it's not exactly the same thing there either. So I think, you know, simplistically either first law, then gospel or gospel, then law, it, you know, if they're talking about human circumstances, there's a huge amount of variety. But I would say that, you know, if there's some kind of like ultimate, like ontological ordering of law and gospel, then I would just say that Lutherans read Luther badly if they think that they're kicking away law and law is not part of who and what God is. I just think that's a a faulty antinomian reading of the doctrine of God that Luther definitely never intended. Yeah, I think that what really disturbed Karl Barth in the 1920s and 30s was the liberationist Lutheran preaching that the gospel had so displaced or antiquated or demobilized the law, one could make this decision of leap of faith uh, for Hitlerism as the liberating thing that God was doing in the world without any sense of the way Hitlerism profoundly contradicts the law of love. I think that troubled Bart very, very much. I think if you're a good reader of Luther, even with the affirmation of love, 
the the thing is that's it's honestly such an empty word so much of the time. The reason we have a law is because we don't know what it means to love. And so I, I think, you know, law is love or love is law. <laughs> it makes a big difference which order that one is in too. The law is right. love, but love is not the law because we don't know what love is. And so, I mean, again, if you're any kind of extensive reader of Luther, you cannot fail to see how often he tells people very clearly what to do and what not to do because that is of God and this other thing isn't. This is a, such a sticky, wicked law and gospel, gospel and law. Bart's order was simply based on the exegetical insight that both in the book of Deuteronomy, Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the indicative of grace empowers the imperative of the obedience of faith. So in Christ, you are light. Therefore, walk in the light, right? It's just, it's a, a very simple uh, grammatical understanding of what's going on in, in both Testaments, that the word of grace is the word that captures and inspires the new obedience, and the new obedience is simply the exhortation to live out what you have been made, what you have become uh, in Christ by faith, gospel law. Uh, the Lutheran distinction, law and gospel, means something entirely different, as you were indicating. The law is in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the accusation that you do not trust in the indicative, that you are, in, you are not trusting or finding uh, in God your righteousness, life, and salvation. And with that uh, accusation, you are revealed uh, as incapable, therefore, of obeying any of the commandments spiritually or truly. So there, there, there are different things that are going on in these two different arrangements. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction. Well, to wrap this up, Dad, um, what would you recommend to interested listeners that they most might want to read? If they've never read Bart or are coming back to Bart, where would you direct them to begin? Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's. Uh, I'll tell you, it's, it's very hard for the uninitiated to read Karl Barth because his erudition is so vast and his rhetorical style is so intense. Uh, you really uh, probably need some guidance to read it. Uh, but I would say, look at in the light of everything I said in this podcast, don't read the earlier Bart. Uh, Perhaps at the earliest, read Bart's Anselm book, slowly and patiently. And then uh, take a look at the church dogmatics and see if you can find an entree there somewhere. Uh, and set aside, especially if you have Lutheran prejudices against Bart, and they can be conservative as well as liberal. They can be inspired by Tillich on the one side, and, or they can be inspired by Althaus and Ehlert on the other. Just set aside those prejudices and try to read Bart fairly and charitably on his own terms and see if he is not as helpful as I'm suggesting as he can be. And then we could, at some point, on a much more sophisticated level, entertain some criticisms of Bart. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, in our next episode, we are going to jump back 1,800 years in time and take up the early church father, Irenaeus of Lyon. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. 
For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.